the Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus, full of stories and love for all. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. My friend Roger asked me to come to his house and he'd made soup. And he said, you will drink my soup, won't you? And for me, I, I've never forgotten that line because he thought I would never have anything in his house, that I wouldn't eat his food because now there were already these warnings about being with people that had AIDS and that's when it started. And then it just didn't stop throughout the 80s. Everywhere I went, I think I was spending so much time in hospitals. People I was really close to became ill. When I was in Bochum in 1987, putting on Starlight Express, one of my assistants became ill. And then my dearest friend, Alan, who I love, the love of my life, became ill in London. And I would go there and back between Germany and London. And then the people that were in Starlight Express in New York became ill. Suddenly, my life was filled with a different kind of caring and a different way of living because you are trying to breathe life into people who know they're going to die. Hello, I'm Matt Kane, and welcome to Matt Kane Meets on Virgin Radio Pride. That was the one and only Dame Arlene Phillips, who I'll be speaking to today. In the 1970s and 80s, Arlene ran the dance troupe Hot Gossip. She's choreographed music videos for the likes of Elton John and Whitney Houston, as well as West End musicals Starlight Express and We Will Rock You. And, of course, she was a judge on TV's Strictly Come Dancing. In case this has passed you by, all of these industries are very queer friendly. And it's in her role as an ally that Arlene is joining me today on Virgin Radio Pride. I'll be speaking to her right after this. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. This is Matt Kane meets on Virgin Radio Pride. And today I am thrilled to be joined by Dame Arlene Phillips. Arlene, welcome. Thank you. I cannot wait to chat to you about my big gay life. (laughs) Fantastic. I want to ask you so many questions and you're absolutely right. We are here today to celebrate your status as an ally. But the interesting thing to me is I'm assuming that when you first established a connection with gay people, people didn't even use the word like ally. Absolutely not. I I have heard the word ally and I love the, I love the way it gives you that freedom to be part of a community that you love and it, it, I think that is important but no and in fact you know when I first started realizing that I myself was becoming a bit of a gay icon was in the early 70s where most people that I knew were very shy of coming out and saying they were gay And for some reason, I was taken as a sort of a mother figure, a friendly figure, somebody that felt open and welcoming. And my classes in Floral Street is where I first had the meetings of my life with so many gay 
men. Right, we're going to come to those classes in the 70s, meeting all these gay men. What I'd love to know first is, you said for some reason, when you were talking about your affinity with gay men in particular, queer people, outsiders, I would like to drill down into where we think that comes from. So would you be able to set the scene for us, particularly our younger listeners, Mm. when you were growing up, what kind of things did you hear people saying about gay men, lesbians? What was the general social context like towards them? When I was growing up, I was in an all-girls grammar school and it was very, very strict. They had a huge boys' school next door and we could we had adjoining playgrounds and the first time really I became aware of boys who were being called prissy or Nancy boys or it was over the walls. It didn't really I didn't really come face to face with all of the the world or even think about it because I grew up in such a, what appeared to be a very straight world. Yeah. You know, the 1950s into the 60s. In the north of England on the outskirts of Manchester. Yeah, it it wasn't a subject that came up, you know, and you would smile on TV um, at the sort of affected men that uh, were were in random TV shows but it wasn't a subject that was that came up, that was spoken about. And so when I was catapulted into the world where I had an affinity with gay men, it really wasn't something that I'd thought about. So when it happened, it was an enormous, a really enormous event. So it's interesting that you hadn't really thought about it, but a lot of people from that era say, would say, when accused of homophobia, would say, oh, that's just the way things were. That's how everybody was. So what I want to know is with you, when you heard people calling boys over the playground wall, queer Nancy boy, what was it about you that didn't go along with it? I think that my upbringing, um, my family were um, very poor. And they always talked about giving, even if it was like every week we had to put some spending money in, in, in the tin box for charity, even when we hardly had any spending money. So we were brought up with a very giving attitude. But also my mum, who died when I was young, had a gentleness to her and a kindness and love and and really wanted the world to be loving and she taught us how to love so growing up I always think of others growing up I always think about the kids who were mocked I think about the kids and I was one who was at the back of the class and you know if you weren't bright and getting 100% in your exams you were dismissed so I've always been on the side of those who've been dismissed or not allowed to feel I can be who I am. That's fascinating. So that was already there before you properly met out gay men. And did that happen? So you moved from Manchester to London and you started attending these dance classes. I want to hear all about it. And is that when you first came into contact with loud, proud, in your face gay men? Totally. And they were not loud and proud. They were shy and unhappy. 
Oh, really? And I turned them into loud and proud and outspoken and gave them the courage to talk to their families and gave them the courage to allow them to understand and let them be who they are and what they want because everybody deserves that right in their life. Absolutely. So so that's interesting. So you hadn't really thought about it too much, but you'd been no. taught to understand and to love and be tolerant in general. So how did you, um, can you remember the first time you met these unhappy, quiet, hiding away gay men? When, when I started sort of dancing and really I didn't have any success as a dancer, I was quite short, quite stocky. And despite being quite brilliant, I was not the type for TV. I was not five foot six and blonde uh, with a ready <laughs> smile uh, that got fixed on my face. You know, I was earthy and, and, and strong. So actually, can I just pick you up on something? So yeah. actually, you were a bit of an outsider and a misfit and you were different. So maybe you understood the feeling of rejection that queer people had. Matt, I've been a misfit all of my life. I was never a number one in anything. I was always at the back, the girl that wanted to dance, to do ballet. And my school was all about intellect. It was all about intelligence. It was all about examinations. Dance was frivolous. And why would a girl coming to this school want to do that? So I was the odd one and I found my home in the dance school, but actually it was all girls. I studied with all girls. There were no, no males in my dance class. It wasn't until I came to London where suddenly there were mixed dance classes. I was in my element. <laughs> but were you moved when you said that they weren't happy, they were hiding their gayness? That must have been quite moving. I can see how that really got you engaged in their stories. What happened was I began to teach at the dance centre in Floral Street. Um, rock jazz was it, the title of its name of the class. And I did a little article in Cosmopolitan magazine. And so from taking these classes with a few of the dancers who worked in the West End, the article, article came out in Cosmo and suddenly there were queues down the street for my classes because it was exercise and it was open and it was for beginners and anyone could come. So I had all of these men coming in from market traders to barristers to one who was studying to be a rabbi. I mean, it was just the biggest mix you could ever imagine. I had a boy who started a journey to being trans, had been thrown out of his home. And what happened was at the end of class, at the dance center, there was a big table down in the entrance and you could get your Kona coffee, have a drink of coffee and chat. And that's when everybody started to chat to me, the teacher that was helping them be themselves physically and enjoy dance and give them a life that they love and giving them the freedom to be themselves, started telling me their stories. And I don't think there was one person I met who was happily gay and unafraid to talk to their parents. And that's where it all began. And then there was a magical day when a young French boy and Bruno Tonioli and <laughs> others, yeah, who could not, um, 
find a class in London. They'd all come from Italy and France in a show called La Grande Eugène. And they discovered my classes and they were there every day. And one of those boys became my greatest love in my life. And it was the most amazing relationship. Um, and I, I spent so many nights with, with Bruno and the other members of Le Grand Eugène who really embraced me, but helped me understand gay life and a gay community that lives together, that share their lives together. And they took me on the heath. Oh my God. Yes, <laughs> yes indeed. Yeah, they took me on the heath. You went cruising. Heath. I went cruising with them. <laughs> I was yes, yeah. And what did you? Yeah. Th- Sorry, this, I was that. I was that girl. If you were this they quiet, were my studious girl from um, Manchester, what did you think when you went cruising on the heath? Oh, listen, I'd walk the King's Road and watch those boys passing and E-type Jags, and I would have been ready to jump in their cars. <laughs> so cruising on the heath, you know, it was just another adventure. Right, fantastic. Arlene, cruising on the heath. There's so much I want to pick you up on. We're just going to have a quick break. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. This is Virgin Radio Pride. You are listening to Matt Kane meets, and today I am meeting the one and only Dame Arlene Phillips, who's just been telling me about cruising on Hampstead Heath. <laughs> Giving dance classes, what I'd love to talk to you about now, Arlene, is when you set up your first dance troupe, Hot Gossip, in the 70s, you set it up, you were director and choreographer, so presumably a lot of these close male, gay male collaborators, dancers, you had them in the troupe as well. The Hot Gossip group began because, I guess... In some ways, yes, my class was people that needed to find a home and a place to explore themselves and to dance and feel free to dance. And in my class were wonderful, wonderful boys, a lot of diversity amongst young men coming into my class because there were no black males in theatre shows Um, And one of my dance group, Mark Time, was one of the first who did a little dance role in Billy. Um, So this mixed group, and I was thinking, if I formed a dance group that really was about what was happening today in the clubs, in the world outside the dance and TV world, which was very, very friendly, smiling, step-kicking, and highly energetic groups of dancers but nothing that looked outside with sexy clothes, sexy moves. Life life was changing. Freedom, the pill in the 60s. There was this whole other world which you never saw on television. So I was determined to do something to make a change to TV. And I thought, hot gossip, great name. Everyone's going to talk about it. Bought loads of lingerie because it was cheap. You could dye it different colors and you had costumes. And we started to work at a club called Monkberries on German Street, which was like the fashion hotspot. Anybody who was anybody went to that club. One night a week, hot gossip appeared there. And I thought, this is it, fame? No. Every TV director or producer came to see our show said, 
too sexy for television. You can't put that on TV. You can't, and, and we actually struggled for three years until a magazine called The Ritz, which everybody who was anybody got Ritz magazine, put us on the cover, a very sexy photograph of Hot Gossip and a director called David Mallet saw the magazine, screamed to his PA, get me Arlene Phillips, get me Hot Gossip, that's the dance group I'm going to use on the Kenny Everett video show. And everybody thought we were an overnight success because we were so scandalous, we made the front page of every newspaper from the first time we were on TV. Well, and can I just say, I can remember watching Hot Gossip on the Kenny Everett show, and there were a sensation. But for anybody listening who's younger, mm -hmm. the Kenny Everett show, so Kenny Everett was himself a gay man in yeah. the closet at the time. Yeah. And from what I've discovered since, what's been written about him, he was quite a tortured, unhappy one. Oh. I'd love to know how well you knew him. And was it an open secret that he was gay? Was it something everybody was in on? Or <laughs> it's, what, it's one of those things. Everybody knew he was gay. But... Tortured, yes, because as a performer, he was happy, you know, he was happy. Camera switch on, Kenny Everett did his thing. Camera switch off, and he would hang around with the boys. The boys in Hot Gossip were so kind to him, um, particularly one of our boys called Floyd, who became a very close friend of Kenny's. But he was deeply unhappy. Um, because, you know, he, he, he was married and supposedly this was a real marriage. And you realize how, how cruel it was for people not to be allowed to let people know who they are, live the life they want, live that life in secret, hide it away. Why should anybody have to do that? And how hard it was for somebody like Kenny in the public eye. I completely agree. Um, and for people who don't know, again, listening, Kenny eventually died of AIDS. Um, I'd love... So we're talking about the late 70s into the early 80s now, Hot yeah. Gossip's glory days. And that is the start of the AIDS crisis. Yeah. You know, you were a key figure in the dance community, which was massively oh. hit. Can you remember when people started to talk about the disease and the fear that started spreading? In 1979, I made a film called Can't Stop the Music with the village people also pretending to be straight. <laughs> um, and it was obviously a wonderfully and crazy film, but it is essentially a gay film, and I'm really proud of that. Um, but... We went to San Francisco and we, where we did the big finale and there was ads all over San Francisco that they could come, they would get food, they would dance in a the film, they'd appear in the film and get a little bit of cash. So we are all in San Francisco and the hall, this massive great space was filled with gay people, gay men. They sent every single person that could onto the streets to bring in some females to watch the village people because not one female had turned up <laughs> not one and and if you watch the film and you see that final scene look closely you'll see the first five lines have got women in 
look further to the thousand people that was there and there's not one woman. But what happened on the film, Bronte Woodard, our writer, became ill, suddenly became ill with lesions coming up on his arm. This is 1979. 1979, nobody knew what it was. And then one of our dancers became ill. And then one of our most beautiful photographers, who I was very close to, became ill. There was no name. There was nothing. These people were ill and being taken care of. And, and that was in 79, where nobody knew what it was. And they were in hospitals and nobody knew what it was. I then went home but came back in February when I was working on the edit. And by then, they had names and they were isolated. And my friend Roger asked me to come to his house and he'd made soup. And he said, you will drink my soup, won't you? And for me, I, I've never forgotten that line because he thought I would never have anything in his house, that I wouldn't eat his food because now there were already these warnings about being with people that had AIDS. And, and this was this was the early eighties. And this then. was the early eighties, and that's when it that's when it started. And then it just didn't stop throughout the eighties. It, it, everywhere I went, I think I was spending so much time in hospitals. People I was really close to became ill. When I was in Bochum in 1987, putting on Starlight Express, one of my assistants became ill. And then my dearest friend, Alan, who I love, the love of my life, became ill in London. Oh, and no, I would so... go there and back between Germany and London. And then the people that were in Starlight Express in New York became ill. Suddenly, my life was filled with a different kind of caring and a different, a different, a different way of living because you are trying to breathe life into people who know they're going to die. And the man you described as the greatest love of your life, he didn't make it. No. So no. what was that like to lose him? I cannot even tell you what it was like, how hard it is, in, uh, you know, in my heart to ever, ever put that to bed. It will always be there. He called me Trucky because he thought I was like a little, you know, <laughs> a little toughy. So I was his Trucky. And um, yeah, it was really hard to live through that. And he couldn't tell his parents and, you know, ha had a, a so-called girlfriend that his mother believed was his girlfriend. It was, it was terrible. And that's why, you know, Russell Davis is a sin, is like reliving the life that I led. So how did you feel when you watched it then? I couldn't watch it at first. I, w I knew about it because Russell had told me about it. We worked together on A Midsummer Night's Dream and he had told me that he was doing this. I couldn't watch it at first. And then I think I got through episode three and had to stop. And then four, you know, four just tore me apart. And and I did get through it, in, you know, in the end and have forever told people to watch it because it was, it was my life. 
When you think about those friends that you lost now, it's obviously a long time since you lost them. They were young, particularly the greatest love of your life. How do you keep their memory alive now? With Alan, I have all his little notes and all the photographs that we had together. But, you know, when you lose someone, they remain in your heart. They're such a big part of you. You feel like you're left with a piece of their DNA inside you. You can't forget. I mean, we we made one of the first quilts for Alan, you know, with many others. So I'm very, very proud of that. It's beautiful. But memory, anything that you touch, anything that you have that you love is always there inside you. Okay, thanks for that, Arlene. We're going to have a quick break. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. You're listening to Virgin Radio Pride. This is Matt Kane Meets, and today I am talking to Arlene Phillips. Arlene, I'd love to talk to you now about, we've talked about um, running your dance troupe, Hot Gossip, on telly. You also have choreographed some amazing videos for pop stars, huge pop stars, from Diana Ross to Whitney Houston, but a lot of that, when I look at your CV in terms of the pop videos that you've choreographed, there's a lot of closeted stars there. You've got Freddie Mercury, you had Elton John who was in the closet at the time. You also did a few, as I said, for Whitney Houston, and I think we have to be careful with how we describe her, but we do know that she had a long relationship with a woman. So when you were working in the pop industry, was there this understanding that pop stars could not be open about their sexuality if it differed from the norm? And how much of it was an open secret? Was everybody in on it? I I think that people were afraid to come out because they're told by their managers they'll lose their jobs, their fans, their, 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 their legacy of being a star. Um, so it wasn't really discussed. It wasn't discussed. It was uh, Elton John and Renata, you know, it just wasn't discussed. It's so bizarre. So was he, when you, you did, know, was it I'm Still Standing that you did? I did, the, that was my first one, and then I wanted to do, went to do many more. And yes. was, so was he still married at the time? And Renata came to visit, but um, yes, so I suppose he was married at that time. Yeah. And, it, and it was so, you couldn't, even as a trusted collaborator with a lot of these closeted gay stars, you couldn't even risk bringing it up. It just wasn't discussed. I don't think it was any of the people that, outer people that surround them, uh, something to talk about because the inner people that surround them kept control and everything, the managers, the producers, the, there was this kind of inner ring and I just got on with my job. Yeah. However, Elton John is one of the most generous people in the world and when we did I'm Still Standing and we um, had a lot of fun, there were... Words spoken of make sure that we have lots of pretty boys <laughs> in the dancers, and we did. And then Elton would take us out to dinner at night, and we would have the greatest dinners and parties, you know. And of course, there was the freedom to be who Elton was. 
So you were, so by yeah. that stage, you're in the inner circle then. Let me, so you were, you were trusted with that information. Can I ask you about Whitney? Because it was really fascinating when you were talking before about the gay men that you knew and you sense their unhappiness hiding themselves away. So we've seen from the documentary that Whitney did have a long relationship with a woman mm-hmm. and Whitney let me, let me be me, the documentary was called. And we've also seen, it's on the record, that she was troubled, that she had the addiction issues. When you started to hear about the relationship with the woman coming out, did it all make sense to you why she was unhappy? Uh, it absolutely made sense to me. And it's very interesting because the first video I did uh, with her was called How Will I Know? And Robin, who I now know, was her girlfriend. But at that time, they were best friends and she was the friend that helped look after her. And Whitney spent every single break in the Winnebago, huge Winnebago, rarely spoke, came out, told her what to do. She was lovely, charming, did everything I wanted, but there wasn't any banter, any other communication. She went back to the Winnebago. She couldn't be herself, she couldn't be open. Not at all, not at all. But when I went to New York, it was very different to do, um, I want to dance with somebody. There was this not serious any longer, shy, quiet Whitney. There was a bubbly, bouncy Whitney who wanted to dance, who wanted to play with the boys and dance with the boys. And so it felt like she'd stepped away from this sort of sombre life um, unhappiness and, and was having the best fun in her life. So that's obviously the last thing that I did with Whitney. So I saw this joyous, happy, loving her fame, which I didn't feel in the first video. Uh. So I felt a change, but it didn't even occur to me that Robin was any more than a friend, but just somebody that was there to support her. And how about Freddie Mercury? Because you did, one of the things you did with him was The Great Pretender. Yeah. So even in the title of that song, and there's him and his friends in drag, um, in that video. Yeah, I want to you, break free. I want to break yeah. free, but also, was didn't they have some drag with the backing vocalist in The Great Pretender? Yes. You know, yeah, so yeah, yeah. so it was that he was already openly playing around with it all, even though he was in the closet. It's very strange, isn't it? Because Freddie was openly performing as a woman, openly having the time of his life, and um, he was... Actually, anyone could see, because when I first met him, Freddie, unlike Elton John, who would turn up on the day and say, tell me what to do, Freddie wanted to be involved. So the director of, um, actually, of of the video I was making with him came along. We went to a flat in Earl's Court, which is where Freddie kept his home for work. And it was opened by a guy with leather trousers on and body straps, <laughs> hulking great bruiser of a guy. And, and then we, we worked with Freddie there, but it was only later that Freddie invited me to his beautiful home and we had, you know, parties. And they were wild and they were, they were gay. 
So he was very trusting then. So at that at that point, you were, you talked about the outer ring and the inner mm. ring. You by that stage were in the inner ring, and he must have been quite much as I love him. He must have been like almost a bit slapdash about people finding out. I don't think he really thought about it. I felt that he was protected, but I think Freddie, in who he was, actually could be anything and anybody he wanted to be. Like his fantasy of dancing with the Royal Ballet. He made it happen. Yes, that was you know? I Want to Break Free, yeah. wasn't it? And he he could totally become his own dream. You know, Freddie saw himself as a ringmaster, um, a dancer, an opera singer. You know, Freddie lived in a fantasy world. But what he couldn't be was an open gay man celebrating no. his love for another man no. so he could do all he could let that side of him out through different fantasies but he could the only role he couldn't play was himself yeah because he was afraid he was afraid of what people told him yeah and freddie wasn't afraid of anything so what about so right there's so many questions i want to ask mm. you um gay arlene so we've had the pop industry we've had telly but you also were choreographing huge West End musicals at the time. So how did the world of musical theatre, which was very much a safe space for gay men, or it was known as a safe space mm. for gay men, how did that differ from the pop industry? Were, was there more openness there? or I think once I started, really, there was even doing um, some TVs as a dancer, there were openly gay boys who were in the world of dance and unafraid to be seen as gay. And they were considered like, this is who I am. This is part of me. And so by that time, the whole kind of gay world was acceptable, and particularly in musical theatre, which is very odd because it's mostly run, at that time, was mostly run by a very straight male creative team but gradually that that changed um not many women uh, at the time when i started in theater were in uh, creative teams very very rarely um but then being gay and being open became a big part of theater world and people were unafraid of it people were not any longer afraid but of course, most roles, gay men had to make sure that there was no flamboyance. They had to dance straight. And that was really odd. I found that so odd when, when men didn't dance as who they were. But was that when they were ensemble or is that when they were playing a role, playing the role of a straight man and therefore they ha you had to believe the love story with a woman? My ensemble in Greece, I had a couple of out there wonderful gorgeous gay men who were told very clearly by the director that they had to dance, put your tongue away, and uh, and uh, I want to see your muscles. Oh, really? So they had to butch it up as oh, pretend yes. to be straight men? Yeah. Oh, yes. Because there yeah. wouldn't have been... What's it called? Not the pink ladies. What's the male? The T-birds. The T-birds. So there, the wouldn't have been, yeah. there wouldn't have been gays in the T-birds, I suppose. No. So they had to look like... But, of course, there probably were. This was yeah. a Chicago high school in the late 50s, 60s. Yeah. Yes, I'm sure. There probably were. Yeah, there okay. were. Eugene, 
you know, the little oh, nerd, yeah. the little nerd. Yeah. You know, obviously <laughs> the bookworm on his own with his books. I love it that you can spot the gaze. <laughs> Arlene, we're going to have to take a quick pause. We'll be back in a few minutes. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. This is Virgin Radio Pride. You are listening to Matt Kane meets with me, Matt Kane, and the one and only Arlene Phillips. Arlene, we've talked about pop videos, we've talked about telly, we've talked about dance classes. I must ask you now about one of the things a lot of people listening will know you for, which is as a judge for years on Strictly Come Dancing. Now, I know that they've now had same-sex couples on the show, but I've often thought, you were talking earlier about your dances in Greece, I've often thought about how gendered the roles are in ballroom. For example, the male leads and lifts the much lighter, more decorative female around... Is this something you ever gave much thought to when you were working on Strictly? Um, I gave a lot of thought to um, gender in dance because I started also when I came to London studying contemporary dance. And that to me seemed to have a freedom to be who you were, what you want. Physically, you could dance with boys and it wasn't always immediately you would imagine uh, it's about sex. And I also, in Hot Gossip, actually had same-sex relationships within dance. So Strictly, to me, seemed the oddest thing, and particularly um, ballroom and Latin, where the men, however straight they may have dressed or, or um, danced with women or would lead or lift women, how many of them, there was a girl behind the... Top hat, white tie and tails. Yeah. And also, when you look at Latin dance, what were those boys dressed in and how much makeup, eye makeup did they have on? So I always found it very, very odd that there wasn't a, a mixed gender in dance in ballroom and Latin much, much earlier on. So were you, when you were working on Strictly, did you want to have same-sex couples dancing or was that not even discussed it wasn't even discussed. Just shows you how much and, things have moved on in the last 15 years, doesn't and it? And also, when I did a piece with Kanduko for Strictly Come Dancing, I think four or five years ago. Yes, I remember. I wanted in that piece, I had two women dancing together and I had males dancing together in that piece because I wanted it to be about the earth and the air and, and, and fuse everything together including the male-female relationships. And there was a bit of a, a deep breath on, on Strictly. But with, when I work with Kanduko as a company, that's what fun. we do. We have those mixed relationships, the same-sex relationships, mixed relationships. It's not even thought about. So I put it into that piece. And this is when you went back as a guest choreographer yes. after you left as a judge. Yes. That's fascinating because it shows how much... When did you leave as a judge? What year? 2008. So it shows how much things have changed between 2008, between when you went back as a guest choreographer, yeah. and was it last year that they had this first same-sex couple yes. or the year before? Things have changed so much, haven't they? And and I must say, you've done quite a few TV talent shows. You also did So You Think You Can Dance. 
There have been, all of them, X Factor, they've been a real force for increasing visibility of queer people. They've often had contestants who were flamboyantly gay, yeah. celebrating oh, their yeah. gayness. They've been a real force yeah. for good, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think there's now an enormous change, an enormous change in diversity in every form, in everything we do, you know, whether that is racial diversity, whether it's uh, disability diversity. It's, it's so important. And interestingly, when I was directing the Share Show, we had some auditionees who were trans oh, for, for, for the role of Cher, yeah. Oh, fantastic. So yeah. this, is the, this is the show you've currently got touring that you've directed, yes. the Cher show based yeah. on Cher's story, yes. the life of Cher. Yeah. Oh, so that's fantastic. Yeah. And, and, if the, and if the performer had been right, would you have cast a trans I would perform- totally, absolutely, totally have cast. It's getting the Cher voice right, having the range. I mean, a lot, a lot of performers really are brilliant at imitating Cher. They've got her down, but it's actually actually being able to play her in yeah. life, play yeah. her in the relationships. But yes, um, I'm open to open casting. So everything, I mean, you know, just talking about this, it, it shows how much everything has changed now, doesn't it? Did you ever think that things, you know, when you were meeting those unhappy gays when you first came to London in the 70s, um, did you imagine that things would become so much more tolerant and diverse and gloriously inclusive. Did you have any idea? I, I had no idea that we would get to where we are now this day. And going to, uh, when Can't Stop the Music is shown in cinemas, they usually have a night and we'll do a Q&A. And it's so exciting. I mean, there is actually a naked shower scene in that film that you have to <laughs> really, if you look, you can see it all. But the fact that there are these homes, these places where everyone is proud to be and, and share their lives, and it has to go on. And what would, and, and you know, we're both smiling as we're talking about this. What do you think um, those gay friends who didn't make it um, to today, what do you think they'd have thought of how much things have changed? I bet they couldn't imagine it. No. And, and, and Matt, how, how hard is it that this really hurts me when I think how quickly they got that vaccine out for COVID and you think that in a heartbeat, this has saved so many lives, how hard it is to think that they took so long to realize this was human beings that were dying. This wasn't just gay men, this was people who had homes and families that loved them and cared for them. And nobody considered that. Nobody that cared in those days. always so, yeah. be a massive piece of history that, that people didn't care. So did you think about that during COVID? Did it make you angry looking back and missing your girlfriends? It still makes me angry. It still makes me angry. You know, there are people I loved all over the world, lost that cruel disease, whose final days, when I went to see my friend Glenn and I gently touched him, he screamed because every part of his body with a little touch, a tiny touch, was in pain. 
and and to you know to go through that when you think of the collective suffering that is a scandal beyond belief so is it because governments healthcare companies just didn't care about the people who were catching that's HIV what I, is? that's mm. what i believe mm. that's what i believe totally yeah and trying to look towards the future now and trying to be a bit uh, more positive Yes. Um, as we end, Do, I mean, so a lot of your friends didn't make it, which is heartbreaking, but you have continued to have key gay figures in your life all the way through your life. You're, you've, you've got a couple of shows currently playing in the UK. You've got Greece and the show show we've talked about. So you're still right at the heart of musical theatre. Do you think you will always have gay men as part of your life? Are they part of who you are and as a creative and as a woman? I'm drawn to gay men. My um, current um, associate director on the share show is a young man called James Cousins, who I'm doing show after show after show with. We did Midsummer Night's Dream together. But he's also one of my best friends. I'm going out tonight. And James is coming along. Um, we, are, we are bonded. Richard Rowe, another of my associates, uh, for years and years and years, they, they are my best friends. I have so many best friends. In fact, if I'm going out and I've got an invitation somewhere, it's either one of my daughters, one of my gay best friends. <laughs> Brilliant. And if you think about, like, when you talk about when you were that little girl who was taught to love and understand, but didn't quite understand the gay thing because it wasn't around her, do you think she'd be proud of the woman that you've become? I think that she would be very, very proud. The girl that really didn't have much hope for a future not only became a dame, but was allowed to love so many people that was a gift to me, that they found something in me and I found something in them in my gay world. Arlene, thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. Right, that's about it for this week. Thanks very much to my guest, Dame Arlene Phillips. Drop me a line on social media if you've enjoyed the show or you have something you want to say. We are on Virgin Radio UK and I'm on at Matt Came Writer. And please use the hashtag Virgin Radio Pride. We'll see you next week on Matt Came Meets on Virgin Radio Pride. The Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus, celebrating every colour of the rainbow.